0: Father, we pray that through your word today that you would humble us in the places that we have tried to exalt ourselves so that we might be truly exalted with you, so that we might know the fullness of life which you have invited us into. Come, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're starting a new sermon series on the church. Not on the building, of course, but on the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. And to some of us, that probably doesn't seem like a winner of an idea for a sermon series. Jake Meador wrote in The Atlantic just this last week in an article called The De-Churching of America that in the last 25 years, one in 10 Americans, 40 million people in the U.S., have stopped gathering with the church. Even those that say they're still gathering with the church don't like it as much as they say they do. 22% of Americans report that they attend worship weekly, but your cell phone knows better. Recent studies using cell phone tracking show that people are exaggerating that just a little bit. According to their phones, only 3% of Americans attend gathered worship, even three out of four Sundays. 3%, 22 to 3, it's a huge gap, our phones know. Now there are lots of theories about why all this is happening. Right? There is, of course, the reality that, that less people believe in God and biblical theology in America than they used to, although that's probably woven in with lots of these other things. Also true that people's lives in general have gotten busier, that the activities have gotten more. The church has to compete for that time. We're all worn out and tired from the pace. But there's also very specific churchy things, things that might make us want to stay home, even if we do believe the truth about Jesus and are willing to sacrifice to be gathered with the church. I mean, the scandals, the theological infighting, all the work, organizational work, that has to go into the buildings and, and, and every, the bucks and everything else, the, the constant exhortations to do better when you just don't feel like you can do better. I'm sure it's some of all that. But from the tiny slice of American Christianity that I get to sit down with at coffee shops every week, I'd say wounding and hurt from the church and people in the church is certainly somewhere in that list. I think I have more conversations about church hurt than any other specific topic. Because the church, the people who claim to follow Christ, are a mess. They are broken and weak and sometimes just plain wrong. But even though there's a new response to that, that reality is not new in and of itself. We know that from the book that we're walking through in this sermon series from now until Advent, we're going to be preaching through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, taking it section by section, specifically focusing in on what the letter has to say about the church, the people of God. I encourage every one of us to be reading through in big chunks, maybe just uh, the whole letter at a time, three, four, five times, the book of Ephesians to, to get us kind of settled into this book. Uh, I think that having, though, that kind of lens, like the lens of what does it say about the church? When when you're approaching a book like this is valuable because you, you end up seeing things that you wouldn't see otherwise. And one of the things you see when you read Ephesians through the lens of the church is that this church was a mess. Now, if you're a longtime Bible reader, you may say, ah, like Ken's off base here, right? Of the New Testament churches, Ephesus is pretty good. The Corinthians are a chaotic mess. The Galatian church are turning into a bunch of heretics. The Thessalonian church is putting all its eggs into the Jesus is coming back tomorrow basket and not like doing anything. The Ephesian church actually doesn't get reamed out too bad. They seem to have it pretty together. But one of the key strategies for reading the scriptures in a way that you can connect what's happening in the scriptures to what's happening now is learning to read behind the text. Here's what I mean. When Paul writes something, it can be really helpful to ask, now, Why would he have said that? He could have said anything right there. He could have talked about anything. He writes different things to different churches. But there's a reason he chose to say this to these people. What might that reason be? In other words, when reading the scriptures, look for the issue underneath the instruction. Look for the situation that the writer is responding to. So if we read behind the text of Ephesians, we see all sorts of problems potentially right there under the surface, many of which seem to reflect problems in our own day, right? Later in chapter 1, Paul talks about resurrection power that is available to the church. He prays that they would know it because they don't know it yet. A spiritually weak church filled with doubt might need to hear that. Early in chapter 2, it talks about the utter graciousness of God's calling to the Ephesian church, perhaps because they were trying to do things in their own power and had forgotten where the real power came from. Late in chapter 2 seems aimed at persistent ethnic divisions in the church. I mean, we've obviously moved on from that one, so that's not a big deal. Um, it's a huge deal. Chapter 3 suggests they're having a hard time trusting their leaders that they're lacking boldness in prayer, that they're lacking hope. Chapter 4 suggests that they're divided and argumentative, that they're easily deceived, that they're living more like the culture around them than the Christ within them. Chapter 5 sure seems like they're struggling with sex and money and alcohol. Plus, it sounds like marriages are falling apart. Men and women are divided and mistrusting one another. In chapter 6, the parents are struggling Kids are rebelling, leaving the faith. Authority is suspect and not trusted, and for good reason, that authority is being abused. And then to wrap the whole thing up, the church seems to be being attacked by the evil one and all this, and they don't even know how to defend themselves or fight back. Does any of that at all sound familiar? (laughs) Like all of it. Even a pretty good church can be a pretty big mess. So what do we do? How do we navigate this? One reaction, obviously, is to to point out all the problems. If they don't get fixed quickly, we we opt out. Another option is to quiet quit, right? We keep showing up, but but only kind of half-heartedly and not fully engaging. Or, Or we restrict the circle of the church that we engage with to lessen the possibility of harm. But none of those are where Paul starts with Ephesus. He starts not with a scolding about what they're doing, but with a reminder of who they are. Ephesians one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, now you hear this, and it would be easy to hear it, particularly if you're in a cynical mood, as, as a bit of marketing hype. what do you mean faithful? What do you mean holy, right? It it might sound like he's just putting the most positive spin on the situation possible or ignoring the problems and, and just acting like everybody has it all together, putting on that church smile. Well, if that's what Paul is talking about, that has been tried ad nauseum and it doesn't work. Our experience reveals the thinness of that. But luckily, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he means. Starting in verse three, he lays out, okay, what does it mean to be the holy people of God? What does it mean to be faithful? And it doesn't mean what we think it means. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul goes straight for not what the church is releasing into the world, but what the church is receiving from the Father. He talks about not what they are doing, but what has been done for them, what has been done to them. It's it's helpful to keep in mind, these are are moms and grandfathers and kids and and singles who are uh, working their existence in this port city on the Mediterranean, and Paul says, you are the blessed ones, the ones who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing he starts talking about the church's identity. Now, there's a lot of talk these days about that word identity. And I think we need to go deeper into this. It's a term that really only came into use in the church in the 80s. Um, it was inherited from the psychological realm. And it's a it's shorthand saying way of saying, like, this is who I am but I'm a little torn on it to be honest at this point because lots of people are using this word and they're using it in very different ways. The main place in our culture that we're using the term identity right now is in the LGBTQ plus community. In that context, the word identity communicates what a person consistently experiences, which then informs the rest of the way they live their life. Right? Your experience of yourself becomes your identity, which then becomes who you are and what you present to the world. Now it's not just there, this, this idea of identity being what we consistently experience uh, spills over into any area of life, especially the ones where we cling to labels. It's maybe the most obvious place, right? Republican, Democrat, feminist, traditionalist, Complementarian, egalitarian, evangelical, post-evangelical, charismatic, reformed, whatever your experience of yourself and your convictions makes you who you are and determines who you spend time with and hang out with. It's the way we figure out where to sit at the lunch table in America these days. And those labels are, are, are perfectly fine descriptors for as far as they go. But they cannot define us all the way down. It's an exhausting process trying to construct your identity so that you know who you are and they know who you are. Because what happens? Something changes in your experience and your sense of identity changes. So you have to change the label. And then you have to communicate to others the new label and explain what the new label means and on and on and on and on it goes. The problem with identity being rooted in our experience is that our experience is fickle. It changes, and the ground of our identity changes under our feet. We're looking for someplace steady. We're looking for someplace where we can know who we are, and we can't find it. Praise God, that's not the kind of identity Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a level of who we are that is beyond our experience. In fact, it may even be hidden from our experience or even contradict our experience. This is radical talk right here if you're really understanding what we're saying here. Uh, Notice, Paul says the church is blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I don't yet experience the heavenly realms fully. My experience is tied to the earthly realm, this world of flesh and bone and scandals and shortcomings. But that experience, Paul is saying, is not the whole reality. Hear this. Paul is saying that your experience of the world, even your experience of yourself, is not the whole reality. There is a reality that is beyond, behind, around, underneath that experience that is actually more foundational. What is actually foundational, Paul is saying, is what Christ says about us, not what we say about us. What Christ has done for us, not what we've done. How Christ feels about us, not about what we feel. In other words, for Paul, the key question we need to answer is not who we are as much as whose we are. And maybe to mangle the English language here, the question is not so much our identity as much as our his identity. Who I am, I can stumble around and figure out on my own, but whose I am. Now, that requires something, someone outside of me. That is not something I can construct or need to feel the pressure to construct, but something that I can be given, something that I have to receive. And it is something when God's doing the claiming that trumps my own experience of myself because it is his word that is definitive. He is the creator and I am the created. And if he speaks a word, it is steady and sure and dependable and it has power to make what it says come into being. So Paul, to this church in all kinds of mess, whose experience and actions suggests there's not a ton here worth celebrating. It says that may be like who you are in a sense, but I know whose you are. And the same applies in our day for every corner of the church because the church in every day is not ultimately the people who claim Christ. The church is the people whom Christ has claimed. Let's walk through these next verses as he lays out what these spiritual blessings are and let's let's apply them really specifically to the church that Christ has claimed. Verse four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before God ever spun stars into motion, he said of the Baptists, these people are mine and I will restore them when they fall, and they will be clean and pure in my eyes. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Because he loved the Presbyterians. Because it's like the predestined one, like they go together, right? This, This works. He adopted them in the divine family. And he has made them his kids by his choice. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He has given to the Pentecostals grace, unmerited favor, overwhelming blessing, not just what they needed, but what they could not have dreamed or even known to ask for. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Catholics and the Nandanams and the Anabaptists and the Navigators and Compassion, OM, and like all the rest and all the ones I didn't mention and don't feel left out if I didn't mention them, you're all included, have been bought by Christ. It's an economic metaphor, redeemed. They have been bought back from slavery to self, from slavery to sin, from slavery to the evil one, from slavery to death by Christ, and have been forgiven for the wrong things they have done, the struggles that are ongoing. Halfway through verse eight, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, just because he wanted to, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Uh, Let's get more specific here. He gave even the people that hurt you the people that have rejected you, the people that have failed to love you well. He gave even them this message, this story, just because he wanted to, just because he loved them about what is happening right now in the world and what will happen when one day the heavenly words spoken over the church and the present experience of the church will be made one. When heavenly reality will invade every aspect of creation and make it new. These are just some of the spiritual blessings they have been poured out, and they have been poured out on all. Paul could say these things were true, while of all those other things were also true. And so can we. Because of Christ. Not because of anything we've done, not because we've figured anything out. Because of Christ. Notice the refrain in these verses. In Christ, through Christ, under Christ, in him, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's constantly repeated because what's happening here in the spiritual realms is when we trust in Christ, Christ it's a sign that Christ has entrusted himself to us. We become bound to him and it's that binding which we don't necessarily feel or see or understand all the time, that we don't necessarily experience that changes everything about us and our relationship with the family, the people of God. The reason to love the church is not because the church is lovable. It's because the Father loves her, because Christ died for her, because the Spirit indwells her. The reason to commit to the church is because, not because you get something back out of it, but because Christ is committed to her. The reason not to reject the church is because Christ has not rejected her. Just the opposite. She may act like an adulteress, but she is his bride, and he is not giving up on her. Now, knowing this does not keep us from pointing out all the follies and the heresies and and the messes of the church. Paul is going to bring it. We actually feel confident to speak them all the more in love because we know the church doesn't belong to us or our perspective. It belongs to him. He longs for her to become more fully who she is. So we don't just stop here. We don't just settle for the words. We seek their infleshment in life. We cling to them as our present invitation and we tremble in fear when it seems like portions of the church might actually be trying to run from the grip of the one who claims them. To have God say, this is whose you are, and to say, no, I'm going to go my own way is a fearful place to be. So we speak boldly to recall the church back to the deeper reality, back to who she is. And knowing all this also does not keep us from getting hurt by the church. It doesn't make it hurt less to know that, that she's been blessed in the heavenly places. It actually makes that hurt all the more acute. Because this isn't just some random collection of people who happen to like a similar thing and we all come together and then we head out. This is the start of a new creation. This isn't the way it's meant to be to hurt one another. This is the way it will be. It actually deepens the ache because we know we're meant for more. But knowing this can help us forgive. Because if Christ is forgiven... Who are we to hold back forgiveness? If you've been hurt, it can help to take those people's names who have hurt you and put their name in this passage in the midst of the heavenly blessings. changes your perception on whose they are. Knowing this also helps us to reconcile because if Christ has remained united to his church, we can too it's so easy. I mean, we, we, in this context, like we're, we're in an Anglican church right now, that corner of the kingdom. So many of us don't come from that context. It is so easy to, to kind of define yourself by what you're not. To define yourself against where you've come from. That's not reconciliation. Reconciliation says, this is where God has me now, but I appreciate what happened there and I'm working through forgiving them for what they have done. We don't distance ourselves from those faults. Like Jesus, we enter into them and we ask for his grace to cover them. Now that doesn't mean there aren't some congregations or denominations that are so toxic that we shouldn't like move on to another place. It does mean that there is always hope for life to spring up in the church because Christ has united himself to her and he's never letting go. Christ has bound himself to them and to me and to you, which means ultimately, if Christ has bound himself to all of us, then they and me are part of one family. They and me are both bound to Christ, both bound to one another, and both they and me need to hear these words spoken over them, because both they and me don't live up to these words in our experience. Not yet. So far, we've applied this passage communally because that's the emphasis of the passage, us, we, gets repeated over and over. But there is nothing in the church that is also not in the Christian. There is nothing out there that is also not in here. There is nothing that the church fails at that we don't also fail at because we are the church. That distancing move is so similar to the Pharisees who look down our noses at all the others, right? To the person who walks up to the temple and prays, thank God I am not like those people. Instead of, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The church is only screwed up because I'm in it. Now, I know that from my experience. You know that from your own experience, from your own journey. You don't need news headlines to tell you about it. I do think there's this sense where we're not always fair in the ways that we condemn the church because of the fact that so many of those problems are in the headlines. Right? Imagine if the news headlines were following you around every day. If, imagine if there were reporters ready to pounce on every misdeed, every shortcoming. Like, can you imagine how much dirt they would drudge up? How terrifying that would be how our own experiences and our actions would suggest that we ourselves are anything but holy and faithful. But praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Friends, if you belong to Christ, that means you belong to the people of God. That means you belong in the midst of these promises. And that means that you have been chosen. You, personally, you, in all your messiness and particularity, you have been chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight from before the creation of the world. He knew your name before it came to be. He gave you a new name before the first name ever came to be. He's made you clean and pure and spotless in his sight. You have been predestined for adoption. You have been drawn into the embrace of God himself as his beloved son and daughter just because he wanted to, just because he loves you. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven for the things everybody knows about and the things nobody knows about. You have been given insight into the very mysteries of God that He is working now to unite all things in heaven and earth and make them new, and He is starting with you. And me. And us. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Some of you, I know your experience of the church or yourself. Many of you, I don't. There's so much that we do and so much that the church does to us. What I do know is what's been done for you. You can choose to let your experience of the church or of yourself be the extent of your reality, the measure by which you judge all things. It's a choice millions of people make every single day. In our culture, it feels like the easiest thing in the world. In fact, not doing that is going to feel so radically strange because our experience of the world has become our God. Our perspective has become our scriptures with the unfortunate consequence that we only condemn others and condemn ourselves in this massively overlapping web because we all see the mess. But there is good news. There is gospel. Your experience is not all there is. Not all there is to say about you or about others. Someone else has spoken. And you can trust that the word God speaks over you is really real. You can trust that the word he speaks will determine the course of your existence more than the words you speak. You can trust that you are part of his people, that you are part of the redeemed. You can trust that his word will ultimately be the decisive word. Because when he speaks, who we are gets swallowed up in whose we are. Trust that word this day. Whether it's your first time, whether it's your millionth time, trust that word this day so that you can rest in whose he says you are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, dig out ears for us to hear by your Holy Spirit. You are speaking in these words, in these moments, into our hearts, whose we are. You are speaking that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are speaking that we are forgiven, that we are the redeemed. You are speaking that we are the ones who have been chosen, who have been adopted as your sons and daughters. You are speaking that we, not because of anything we've done, are yours. With those words cut the feet out of the, from the idols of our experience? May our experience topple as what drives our lives. And may you reign and your words reign over us, above us, and in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.